invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, and I want to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, begin to read at verse 1, and here we read the Word of God. Hear the Word of God with me. In the beginning was the Word. Notice with me for a moment that the Word there is capitalized, meaning it is the Christ. So we could read it, in the beginning was the Christ. But in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, but because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Then would you turn with me to Lord's Day 14. Lord's Day 14, that's back in the back of your Psalter hymnal on page 878. 878, question and answer 35 and 36. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. And here the question is asked, what does it mean? What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? And then the answer, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and the blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers in all things except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator and in God's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word, as we find it contained in the creeds and confessions of the church, may God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in Bowmanville with me, you will remember, I hope, from previous catechism sermons that several Lord's Days, these several Lord's Days leading up to this Lord's Day, 
all serve to help us to come to a proper understanding of the significance of the four different names of Christ used in the creed. He was identified for us as Jesus, Christ, Savior, and Lord. And in each of those Lord's days, the significance of each of these names focused on especially how those names related to the life of the believer. And having covered all of that material, the Catechism now goes on in this Lord's Day to teach us of the miraculous conception and birth of our Lord. And I choose the word miraculously with express intention. This particular doctrine throughout all of church history is one of a particular series of confessions most difficult to maintain. And that ought not to surprise us, for you see, in every age... In every age, as man considers his human reasoning to have been enlightened, the first things that need to be discarded and jettisoned are those that have anything to do with the miraculous or the supernatural. You see, such things may have been acceptable in a bygone age. However, to hold to such things, to believe such things in this age, an age of human reason, that's no longer credible. If you're at all familiar with church history, you will know that when liberalism and modernism and apostasy begin to take hold in churches, the first things that need to be abandoned are the things that have to do with the miraculous or the supernatural. After all, says the modernist, after all, we now know. We know scientifically that the world simply cannot have come into being through a process of supernatural creative activity in six days. We're now, <coughs> we're now able to do carbon dating, and as a result of that scientific study, we now have all this evidence to prove that the Earth evolved over a long process of time, beginning with a Big Bang millions of years ago. We know also that it is scientifically impossible for a man to be swallowed up by a fish and then to be regurgitated three days later. We know, we know that it is scientifically impossible to walk on water. And in the same way, we also now know scientifically that conception and birth without human intervention from a virgin yet is a doctrine which strains credulity. It is a doctrine that is simply indefensible. It could not possibly have occurred, at least not in the way it is described in the Bible. Oh, we now all know about in vitro fertilization, but to speak of the birth and conception of Jesus as the Bible does, that is simply naive and even offensive to the mind of modern autonomous men and women. And so we are told these things, such as a six-day creation by divine fiat, as well as miracles in the virgin birth given us in Scripture, all of these must be reinterpreted. They are simply given us as examples, as a literary device, if you will, to teach us a great truth, but they can no longer be maintained as being a literal truth. And throughout all of church history, as churches became more progressive and liberal, such doctrines as creation, miracles, the virgin birth had to be and were abandoned, usually also in that order. However, faithful men of God have well understood that compromise with these doctrines brings with it the very collapse of historic Orthodox Christianity. 
That natural consequence is also clearly recognized by the catechism, and therefore it tenaciously, with bulldog teeth, if you will, hangs onto and expounds for us in this Lord's Day the significance of the miraculous conception and supernatural birth of Christ after having identified and explained to us the four names of Christ, the Catechism now continues to set out for us the significance of his state of humiliation, and then also a little later, his state of exaltation. The next six articles of the Apostles' Creed will deal with these matters. There we will learn of the five different steps of his humiliation and of his exaltation. We will see four The five steps of humiliation are his humble birth, his suffering, his death, his burial, and his descending into hell. And Lord willing, you will examine each of those doctrines as you continue in uh, studying the catechism. And then you will be taught of all of these things. And, And as you continue to study the catechism, but this afternoon, I want with you to listen to the catechism as it summarizes God's word for us with regards to the first step of Christ's humiliation, namely his birth, or to be more precise, his conception by the Holy Spirit and his being born of the Virgin Mary. And a discerning mind, having carefully read and thought about the confession here before us this afternoon, would have discovered that the two questions and answers easily divide themselves into four parts. When taken in its, in its entirety, what is taught us here this afternoon is the person involved, the nature, the reality, and the benefits of the teaching on the virgin birth. And so I want to administer God's word to you this afternoon, following that division laid out for us in the confession, and I used as my theme the birth and conception of our Lord. The birth and conception of our Lord. We want to ask firstly who it was that was born of man, were born man. Secondly, we will inquire how he became man. Then we want to learn about the certainty of his becoming man. And then finally, we will talk of the purpose of his becoming man. So the birth and conception of our Lord, who it was, how he became, the certainty of it happening, and finally, the purpose uh, or even the benefits. May God then grant us his spirit to illumine our hearts and minds as we, as we are taught of God's of God concerning these urgent matters this afternoon. So who was it then that be, has become flesh? That's the first question that the catechism focuses on. And it says the answer then reads, God's eternal son who is and continues to be true and eternal God. And in order to set that stage for a moment, we need to briefly recap the doctrine of the divine Godhead for a moment. God, you will remember from a previous Lord's Day, is is a triune God made up of three distinct persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although all three are truly God, meaning a being of the same essence and being, are being yet three, the three persons, they can be and need to be distinguished. And the question before us now is, which of these three persons of the Holy Trinity, uh, namely, uh, was it that became man? And we, we read, namely, that God the Son, the Son of God, who is and remains God, has taken upon himself our nature, our flesh, our blood, from the Virgin Mary. And so we learn. He remained then what he was. 
He remained what he was, God, but he became what he was not, man. And as consequence of his human birth, he was now fully God and true and righteous man. And it is this great truth that the Apostle John called us to remember when he taught us in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And I draw your, drew your attention to the fact that the Word, the word Word was capitalized, meaning the Word in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So we could read it to say, I could fair paraphrase it to read, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son who came from the Father. The same truth is given us in Galatians 4. When, we, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. So according to the scripture then, it was the second person of the Trinity who being very God of very God has become man <coughs> for our sake. This person, you will remember, is, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, true and eternal God. It's important that we remember, as was taught us in a previous Lord's Day, that Christ was not created, but was eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, he is a full participant in the divine nature of God. Repeatedly, Scripture reminds us of this, and it does so in many ways. We learn of his divine names. We're taught of his divine attributes. We, we hear of his divine work and his, we, his divine glory. Christ confesses himself to being true and eternal God, and millions have acknowledged it to be so and have followed him. But... And also paramount for us to remember is that since he is truly God, he also remains truly God. You see, the Son of God did not change from being God to being a man as consequence of his being born of Mary. He remains what he was. He was truly God, but he also became what he was not, a son of man. The Word became flesh, we read. Allow me an illustration, albeit a poor one. Imagine, if you will, a prince, a son of an earthly king who, through his own decision, abandons the palace to identify himself with the toil of the working class. We've seen something of that in the life of Prince William and maybe Harry of England, but, but until recently, William had, he actually had a job. He had a job as a helicopter pilot, and still today, we often see him in his military uniform. And the question then is, when he works as an ordinary pilot, does he then cease to be a prince? Of course not. He remains what he was. He remains a prince. He remains a prince born of royalty. He remains a son born into the royal family. In the same way, the Son of God, he remained God when he descended down from heaven in the form of a servant to deliver man from his sin and misery. People got, we need to capture in the, all of this. What we need to capture here is the, the deep humiliation of Christ in his becoming man for our sake. Christ himself already gives us to feel that when we listen carefully to his high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, he says, Father, glorify me in thy presence with the glory I had with thee before the world began. Do you hear that? Did you catch that? 
Glorify me, Father, with the glory that I had before I became man. This Christ, this very God of very God, this Christ who participated in divine glory with his Father in heaven, he lowered himself, took upon himself our human nature. He sat at his Father's side in glory, and he freely gave it up. He descended down to live in the corrupt and a fallen world. He lived among us. He was hated, persecuted, finally nailed to the accursed tree and died. That was his his way of humiliation. The next doctrine given us for consideration is how did the Son of Man become the Son of God become man? And again the catechism leads us the way in its answer. The eternal Son took upon himself the nature of man of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Note well the words took upon himself. No one else can take these words upon his lips. As children of men, we are completely passive in becoming flesh. Or if you will, we were completely passive in the process of our human birth. Being born of men and women, being born of our parents was not something we did, was not even something we chose or even consented to. You and I had no part in being born. It was all done apart from us and without our will or our knowledge or consent, we were completely passive in the process, but not so for Christ. We read, he took it upon himself. In other words, it was a deed according to his own will. It was a conscious decision and a chosen undertaking. He took human nature upon himself of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And that this would be so was told us already in Isaiah 7. For a virgin shall be with child, will give birth to a son, and will name him Emmanuel. And that chosen virgin was Mary, daughter of Eli from the house of David. Blessed art thou, Mary, among women. To her was granted an honor unprecedented. And it is now that doctrine that is being denied at the wholesale level among the church of contemporary Christianity. But note well with me that not all who deny this doctrine of the virgin birth deny it in the same way. For instance... And I have no desire to be uncharitable, but if you are somewhat familiar with Roman Catholic theology, you will know that Rome has given a prominence to Mary far beyond the teaching of the Bible. According to their dogma, Mary was born without original sin. They call it immaculate conception. According to them, she lived a sinless life. She arose from the dead and was received into heaven. They call that the assumption, where she now sits as the queen of heaven and mother of God, interceding on behalf of those who would pray to her. And what's so disturbing in all of this is that no basis for any of this doctrine can be found in your Bible. In the Bible, Mary is simply presented as a believing daughter of the church who submits herself to the will of God. Mary is set aside by God for a special role in salvation history, and she is indeed highly favored among women, but she is chosen for that role on the basis of grace, not merit. 
She was, along with Joseph, of the house and line of David. And to David, God had promised a great and a glorious son who would occupy the throne forever. And time and time again, God had repeated this promise. And now the time had fully come, and the Son of God and the Son of Man is born of a virgin. But, my dear precious saints, we need to discern carefully here for a moment. We need to make a clear distinction here. We need to understand that the Son of God did not descend from heaven in human nature. What I mean here is this. Mary was not used as a simple instrument, or if you will, Mary was not simply a vehicle used by God for Christ to arrive in the flesh. No, he was born of her flesh. He was born of her blood. He has taken upon himself human nature, from the flesh and the blood of the Mary of Mary, Christ became flesh. Therefore, he's called son of Mary. And Mary is acknowledged to be the mother of Christ. We do indeed confess him to have descended out of heaven. But this, but this may not be understood to have happened in his human nature, but in his divine nature. It's important that we understand this, you see. You see, if God had sent Christ from heaven in the flesh and then simply used Mary as a vehicle, Christ would then not be truly man, and he would then be unable to atone for the sins of human nature. Our very redemption hangs in the balance with such teaching, and those who hold to such views worship a different Christ from the one presented in our Bible. However, having learned that the Son of God was born of the flesh and blood of a woman, and having learned that his birth was in a, in a natural way, we're also taught that his conception was of a supernatural character. You remember the message of the angel to Joseph. Joseph, 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 do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The same news is told to Mary when she asked, How can this be, Lord? How can this be since I'm a virgin? I know not a man. And she's told, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High will overshadow you. Simply stated, we hear the angel telling us that the Son of Man, born of a woman, and the Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born naturally, was conceived supernaturally. I don't want to repeat that. He was born naturally, but conceived supernaturally. And it has been this supernatural miracle that has caused so much turmoil in Christendom over the centuries. If you're familiar with the creeds of the church, both the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed were penned specifically to repudiate heresies about the doctrine of the Trinity and the natures of Christ. Still today, this miracle is being denied, but the holy Catholic Christian Church stands on the infallibility of God's word and confesses, I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's how the Son of God became the Son of Man. The Catechism goes on to reveal him as being 
like his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And again, several important distinctions need to be made here. In, in becoming flesh, Christ did not, as is held by some, simply become a human person. No, he is and remains God, first of all. But he took upon himself human nature. Therefore, the words, like his brother, his brothers, in all things, sin accepted. We need to understand this carefully. All of humanity has certain things in common. All men are made up of body and soul. And all bodies are made up of similar members. And all souls constitute certain similar qualities. Yet, among all of these things, these things held in common by all of humanity, we know also of great distinctions between men. Each member of the human race has certain distinctives which distinguished him as that particular individual. The same was true of Christ in his, sinful, in his human nature. He was like unto his brothers, his brethren, in all things, meaning he too was made up of body and soul. He too had the same physical and emotional makeup of his brothers with whom he now shared humanity. He was like unto his brothers in all things, sin accepted. And again, this needs to be understood. To Adam was the command, be fruitful and multiply. And in response to that command, human sons and daughters were born of the flesh. Not so with Christ. Christ came into the world in the flesh as answer to the promise to crush the head of the serpent. Christ was born with us from Adam but having been born and conceived in a miraculous fashion by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was distinct and unique from the rest of fallen humanity. Because you see, you see, he was free from the guilt and pollution of original sin. That is now the very kernel, that is now the very heart and essence of this entire teaching. It is the, it is the, the pivot on which redemption evolves or revolves, without which salvation would be impossible. Jesus Christ born in the flesh, like his brothers in all things, sin accepted. Therefore the words to Mary, the Holy One will be born to you, and he will be called the Son of God. In other words, he is not one of us as we are all one in Adam, but he is like unto us in all things, sin accepted. He is a new covenant head, he is, as the Bible often calls him, the second Adam. He is, he is holy. He is unaffected by sin of any kind. He was born sinless, and the sins of the world were laid upon his shoulders. He was born sinless in order to sacrifice and atone for the sins of others, yours and mine. Furthermore, just as he came into the world without the consequence of original sin, he also would not commit any sin in thought or word or deed. In all of his life, all of his life, he kept all of God's laws, all of God's ordinances, all of God's commands and precepts were fulfilled by him in perfection, in perfect obedience for you, people of God, and for me. 
That's how the eternal Son of God became like us, his brothers in all things, sin accepted. He is and remains eternal God. He's taken upon himself our human nature, the Son of God, true God, true man. He is, in fact, he is, he is, he is, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And congregation, God reveals to us many mysteries. The eternal Son of God, true God, true man, like us in all things, sin accepted. Neither men nor angels could ever have learned this mystery had God not revealed it to us. Even now, having learned this great mystery, many things are still beyond our human understanding. The coming in the flesh of the Christ of Nazareth is a miracle which defies our human understanding and around which are encompassed many more mysteries and miracles. In humility, we bow our heads and yet we lift our hearts. God revealed in the flesh in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us. And to us now is given the obligation to search the scriptures to determine the purpose of God in this great mystery. It must be obvious to us that a miracle of such dimension, a miracle of such magnitude, must also have a majestic purpose. Or if you will, a miracle of such a magnitude must have significance of far-reaching consequences. Indeed, the scriptures teach us that the Son of God came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Wherever Scripture speaks of his coming into the world, that blessed promise is given us in connection with our sin. Christ himself also in many places instructs us that he would come, <coughs> he would come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and as we've learned earlier, God in his sovereign eternal decree determined to appoint and anoint the Christ as the redeemer of Israel. And it is in that connection that the catechism in reply to the question, what does the birth and the holy conception of Christ benefit you? Benefit you? The answer is, he is our mediator. With his innocence and perfection, perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin the sin wherein I was conceived and born. Oh, my dear people of God, tremble in amazement and humility with me as you let those words sink deeply into your soul. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in order to be qualified to be our mediator. Already in question and answer 15, we're taught of the necessity of seeking a mediator who was truly God and truly man. In question and answer 16 and 17, we were taught why he had to be human and divine. It had been, you will remember, it had been decreed by God that man had sinned and man must die. 
Therefore, a divine nature alone would not meet the demands of God's justice. However, a human nature apart from a divine nature would also be able, unable to bear the wrath of God and live. And therefore, both human and divine must be the nature of the mediator. As a man, he needed to pay for the sins of man. But as, a, as, as God, he needed to be able to die and be raised from the dead. Oh, people got captured the significance here. See now here, marvel with me here at the great love and the providence of God. To use the words of the beautiful hymn of the Christian church, see the judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing then shall say, this God is mine. Oh, stand in amazement with me here for a moment as we contemplate God's great love as that comes to expression in his marvelous plan of redemption. I made a pastoral call in a nursing home last week, and I noticed in the activity room a huge jigsaw puzzle, and much of it had been done, but it was not sufficiently finished for me to make out the full picture and the box wasn't there for me to see, and many undefined pieces had been joined together, but as yet the picture was incomplete and unrecognizable to me. And something very similar must be experienced by us here this afternoon. It must be with hearts trembling in anticipation that we marvel as all of the pieces of what looked like a giant jigsaw puzzle began to fit together. And now here with trembling hands, we begin to lay the pieces that give us the entire scene, the entire picture. Emmanuel, God with us, ordained, anointed, and appointed by God to open paradise for us. As our prophet, he has revealed the way of our return to the Father. As a priest, sinless, able to sacrifice and atone for sin, your sin, my sin. And as king, leading and govern us through his word, by his spirit, step by step, all through life into eternity. With David, you and I cry out in anguish, in sin I was born, in sin my mother conceived me. A further condemnation is heard from Christ, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and not of the spirit. People of God, the atonement for our sin is to be found only in the blood, <coughs> his blood spilled on Golgotha. But, but, but in order to do so, he had to become like us in all things sin accepted in order to become like us he had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary the guilt of your sin was laid upon him who had no sin and all of it determined decreed and prepared and applied by God in his great love for you congregation the question and answer reads he is our mediator he covers our sin correctly does the catechism point out God's covenantal promises correctly does the catechism use covenantal language in this context our sin uh, our mediator however a question is here asked of you and me personally it is laid upon my heart. God lays it upon my heart to ask of each of you personally. Are you able to rephrase that question into 
He is my mediator. He has covered all my sin. Then can you also go on and say, in myself, I am sinful, conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of, of condemnation, yea, to, or all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. But praise be to God, who before the world's foundations were even laid, has determined and prepared the way for me. For me, are you able to say that? Has prepared the way for me to be reconciled to him through the precious blood of that sinless one born in Bethlehem. All marvel with me at the miracle of the coming in the flesh of the Son of God. Angels heralded the good news to the shepherds. The heavens were torn open there over the fields of Ephrathah. And angels heralded the good news to the shepherds. Joseph, Mary, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, and many others rejoiced in his coming and have glorified God. Take now their praises upon your lips and cry out triumphantly, Glory to God! Glory to God! Glory to God in the highest! Rejoice now that he was given you out of sheer grace, that he has given you Emmanuel, God with us, to seek and to save you and me from that eternal destruction. Had the Father not drawn you, had the Spirit not illumined your mind and your heart, you would never have found the glory of the Son. But according to our Bibles, and the Word, capital word, the Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have life everlasting. All of God, all of grace, all for you and all for me, for our temporal and our eternal 